Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Oz W., Mike G., Jared W., and Dave V. Mr. Alex Black is returning to the show today. Alex is President, CEO, and Director of Rio2 Limited, a Chile-focused gold project developer advancing the Phoenix Gold Project in the Atacama region, Chile. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol RIO and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol R-I-O-F-F. Alex, welcome back, sir. How are you? Andrew, third time on. So I'm really looking forward to it. I really enjoy these interviews. I'm fine um, down in Peru as, as per usual uh, in Lima. And uh, obviously we can talk about uh, how things are going down here with uh, COVID, etc. Uh, in this conversation, but good to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah, certainly. And uh, you're still alive. COVID has not gotten you yet. And you've uh, survived that stampede at your favorite Lima nightclub. And you're still the CEO of Rio, too. So good on you, sir. Yeah, and no, look, I mean, that's sad what happened in the nightclub. Bottom line is people shouldn't have been out. And, you know, there were some mistakes made. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, people for no reason died uh, you know, going down a staircase. And that, that was really sad. Look, you know, it's 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 a it's it's a tough thing down here in Latin America right now. Peru has um, recorded 650,000 cases and 29,000 deaths for a a death rate of about 4.4%. And uh, Chile is at about 412,000 cases with a death rate of or deaths of 11,000 with a death rate of 2.74. So, you know, it's 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 tough, it's difficult to watch because there's really nothing we can do apart from encourage protocols uh, and, you know, health protocols. But, you know, I, I just don't know when this is going to be over. And I guess it will be over when um, we get to a point where there is a viable vaccine and, and, and people can start to to um, protect themselves from from um, catching this but yeah it's it's been it's been very sad and um you know you only know it when you live in a place like this i mean i've seen people on twitter you know make comments and obviously they're in the us and or canada or places like that where you know they're still making flippant comments about this being the you know another version of the flu or what are we worried about and, you know why should we, we be worried and, and unfortunately we have to be worried because it is something extraordinary and it's not the flu it's a very contagious virus and, um, you know, we don't even know if it's going to morph. We're starting to see uh, repeating cases. So people who have had it are getting it again. That's happening down here. I think it's happening in other parts of the world. So, you know, the old initial theories are once you get it, then it's over. You know, your immune is not the case at all. So, you know, I think people just need to take a somber view of this and, we're all trying to get on with our lives. We're all trying to work. We're all trying to live. Um, but as long as we follow protocols and very simple ones like um, 
you know, keeping your distance as much as you can from other people, wearing a mask, very simple, and um, just keeping yourself um, clean, you know, when you get back to wherever you're, you know, or during the day as well and your activities, just wash your hands and don't touch your face, you know. So um, it's all stuff that you would apply. I mean, if you weren't worried about the flu, you, you would do the same things. But with the flu, it's not a problem because, you know, it's, it's something that... Uh, uh, is is dealt with and, and, and vaccinated against. So, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on that because obviously there's lots of people with different opinions, but all I can say to, to listeners is it's very real down here. It's very sad. And, um, you know, when it happens to people that you know, people that you work with, I mean, I'll tell you one statistic. One of our um, managers, Peruvian managers in our office here, has lost five relatives to the virus and they were all frontline doctors. Five people in his family, um, you know, different, different uh, relationships. Uh, another guy that's part of our team is married to a Peruvian, he's, not, he's a foreigner, married to a Peruvian. She's lost two people two in her family. Two people are, are, are dying and two are sick. So there's an impact of six people just in one family there. So, you know, when you live in Australia, Canada, um, I won't say the US because the US is a bit chaotic right now, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, developing countries, you just don't see this impact that we see down here. So I, all, all I just say to um, listeners is just be mindful that it's not the same all around the world. Um, and uh, and be respectful of that, you know, when people talk about it. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. And it's tough. And it, it was a bad set of circumstances with with the news that came out of there about the nightclub. And especially in light of what's going on, I think people can now start to understand just a little bit right now that uh, being in crowds and big groups is not a place to be. We've seen that both with COVID and also in the United States with with various protests that have happened up there. And certainly the U.S. is not a role model in any way. And and there, there's some other countries that have done a much better job. And But yes, you're absolutely right. It's been tough. Even in Panama here, I'm just looking at the map, about 92,000 cases right now. But that doesn't even hold a key to compared to Colombia, neighbor, you know, Peru, further south much smaller population here, but there are some people here that I know that have gotten it. And uh, there's some folks in Canada, of course, you and I both know that have gotten it and going all the way back to a PDAC of all things. So yeah. I think the key word for this virus is respect. Um, and, and what I mean by that is just being res respectful for other people, not just yourself. I mean, obviously look after yourself, but be respectful for other people. And as we know, this virus does affect it may not affect young people as much as it does older people. I mean, the statistics are still being gathered on that. But, um, you know, you, you everybody can have an impact on somebody else. And so it's just respecting that situation and preventing it from happen, happening. So getting together in groups, I mean, it still happens. And we see it every night on the news down here, you know, people getting caught by... Um, the local security people or by the police or by the military because we've got the military in the street too um, um, you know having having a drinking party right uh, <laughs> or, or you know being at a bar you know clandestine bar and so it's like 
you know, why, why do you do that? You know, can't you just stay home and have a drink at home and, um, you know, even invite one or two people around to your home? That's fine too, but don't, you know, don't, don't go overboards. But it's all about respect. And, and I think when people are flagrant and they don't respect the rules, and, and obviously the rules I don't believe are hard rules, they're, they're, you know, they're manageable rules, but that's the issue. That's the issue is, is the people's respect for others. Absolutely agreed. Now, you didn't get COVID, but you were sick. And I was concerned just a little bit that you thought it wasn't COVID, but but it turns out you were okay and it wasn't COVID. Yeah. So you're still the CEO of Rio 2. You haven't uh, gotten COVID and you haven't been voted out. So uh, good to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a, I got a virus. Oh, no, what? no, it wasn't a virus, sorry. I, I, I thought I had an allergy last week and, and, and it sort of started off as an allergy and nose running and all that sort of thing and then the next day when I woke up I just felt a bit off you know just like one of these two or three day things that you normally get and um, and that's what it was and it just sort of knocked me out for a while and but it wasn't COVID. Well Alex let's see broad comments precious metals base metals what do you think of the markets here uh, thoughts on direction and do you see that gold really has the most potential here? You know well I'm a, I'm a gold guy you know, I've been in the business 40 years, um, so I've seen lots of ups and downs during that period of time. What I can say is that I hope that out of all this, we're forming an, a, a new base. As you know, um, prior to the gold price rise in last year, or the start of the gold price rise last year, you know, our seven-year average was about 1250 gold, and um, that was the base. And everybody, you know, ran their businesses and from a gold perspective uh, around that number. Um, now we've got a gold price around 2000. Where, where's it going to go? I have no clue. And I'm a CEO of a mining company. I'm not a, I'm not a, um, an economist or somebody that can predict what's going to happen to, uh, to metal prices. But, you know, um, obviously conditions fiscal conditions around the world sort of are steering um, the, the price in a upward trajectory. Where will it go? I, I just don't know. You know, some people are calling 10,000, 5,000, 3,000. Um, I just hope it doesn't ever get to 10,000 because we're going to have some big problems if it does. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's around the $2,000 mark. Let me tell you, as a, as a miner uh, and a previous miner and a, and, a, and, a, and a would-be miner in the future, um, if gold were to settle around an average of $1,500 for the next few years, I'll be very, very happy. You know, it doesn't have to be where it is today. So, um, you know, the industry, I think, has become more prudent uh, from the point of view of deployment of capital. So you're not seeing crazy M&A uh, transactions going on at the moment. Um, and that's good. Um, what's happening is the gold producers and now the silver producers are starting to generate significant free cash flow, which is about time. And um, there's no excuse for it now because the gold price and the silver price is so high. Um, so it's a great thing. And, um, you know, will there be m and I think it'll be very selective going forward um, at the producer level, at the at, you know, large, medium and small, and, and also at the developer level. I think it'll be um, 
sort of very selective and, and, and subdued. Silver, you know, I'm not a big silver bug. Um, you know, I think silver's like a skyrocket, you know, it sort of can go up and flare out and then come right back crashing down. At least gold is doesn't necessarily track that sort of trajectory. Um, the thing I like is that, you know, when you've got guys like Barrick, you know, Mark Bristow, who, who says, okay, we're still doing all our reserve numbers at, at, uh, at $1,200 gold, um, that's kind of good to hear um, because obviously anything above that is just pure, pure margin. And so, um, you know, we have a project like that. We've done all our numbers at around uh, 1200, 1250 gold. And uh, we have a very viable project at that level. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that gold is now around 2000, but I don't, I'm not relying on it. And that's what investors should know about our story. We're not a story like a lot of others that have, um, you know, skyrocketed in the last six months um, who are on the shelf before that because they didn't work at 1250, right? They didn't work at 1300. They probably didn't, you know, they probably just started to peak their heads above, you know, uh, profitability and, and viability at 1400. So, you know, um, they're, they're out there now and obviously investors um, are getting into those stories, but they're not bulletproof. Uh, a lot of them are not bulletproof down to a lower gold price and we are. Um, so it's good to be in that, uh, in, the, in that bracket. Where, uh, you know, base metals, really base metals, I think, are tied to um, countries opening up and developing and uh, growing. Uh, obviously, we're not seeing that right now. Um, I think you're seeing the copper price rise mainly because of short-term production constraints that, you know, coming out of particularly Chile, a place like Chile, where the copper industry has been impacted by COVID and production is probably not as high as it, it normally is um, you know so so um, you know if governments start to stimulate economies with infrastructure spending then yeah you know we could be away to the races with with base metal prices rising appreciably um, but that hasn't started yet and it hasn't been signaled yet I mean there's been a little bit of talk about that from the US so um, you know for me um, you know I just like to be um, you know, uh, sort of, I, I like to play it down, you know, what's happening with, with metal prices and, and, um, and, and just, uh, take what comes and, um, and not rely on it. That's, that's the key point I want to bring up. Lots of stuff here, Alex, you know, as far as the gold price being where it is and the expectation that if the past highs are any representation of what can happen in this next run, then we can expect double from here. And if you look at certain things like the conservatism coming out of Uncle Mark over at Barrick, what he's doing and, you know, his comments on copper, you know, there's lots of parts and pieces there. And obviously, you know, at 4,000 gold, Rio 2 would want to try to advance as quickly as possible to start capitalizing. That's an interesting point you bring up. I think the only way you capitalize out of this um, rising market for precious metals is to become a producer. And if you're not going to become a producer, I, I don't see the attraction in investing in a story. Um, because it's, it's when you can produce 
and hopefully at a, at a relatively low cost base, that you will generate significant cash and um, be able to deploy that cash in various ways for, to, you know, to the benefit of your shareholders. Um, but if you're just a, an exploration company, um, you know, there's a lot of companies out there. There's come, some companies that have gone right past us from a valuation perspective, and all they got is a few drill holes in the ground. Now I can tell you that a few drill holes don't make an ore body, and an ore body, um, you know, when does an ore body become a mine? It's usually, you know, I think the average is about five to seven years. So, um, you know, if you're not an imminent uh, 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 producer, like we're becoming, I mean, next year we're going into the construction phase and we will be a producer at this stage in 2022. Um, companies like ourselves, like Orzone, like Pure Gold, um, and, and, and there's only a handful that are going to be in production in the next two to five years. Um, they're the ones that people should be looking at because they're the ones that are going to rise significantly in value because the value is going to be predicated on the cash that you're going to be generating. And the cash, and you can see that the, the valuations of the, the cash generators are, are very, very strong and very, very robust. So, um, so that, that's my only comment. Um, yeah. There's a lot of fluff out there, as I like to call it. Um, but the fluff's getting the value because of the um, the rise in the metal prices. To some degree, that helps. I am of the opinion that to some small degree in a portfolio, the optionality type plays, speculation on discovery type plays. There is a small position in a portfolio for that. And as the years wear on, I continue to increase the opinion that uh, potential development stories and also producers are, are really the, the cream. And as people get burnt, over in the discovery side of things, Alex, they then transition over to producer side of things, which obviously supports stories like Rio 2. And you're right, Pure Gold was valued above NPV5 for cash flows earlier this year. They've come down a little bit, but uh, certainly you can see that the, the valuation difference when we got into the stock with our uh, premium members at 50 cents versus where it is today, a little over two, and it was above 230, if I recall. And it certainly went all the way, it actually surpassed MPV5, but there's no doubt that they will produce, that'll happen, but questionably fully valued, but this market is sometimes irrational and you can see it go much higher than that. Yeah, I think, you know, what I'm saying is that to me is real value, right? I mean, it's real value because right. we're actually churning out cash or they will be. So. All I'm getting at is, yeah, I mean, you know, a handful of juniors will, uh, exploration stories will become real stories and will make the next wave of potentially producing assets, but it won't be in the next five years. It'll be after that. And so right. for me, as you say, as a proportion of your portfolio, they're really trades, right? You trade the momentum. Um, whereas... Uh, companies that are going to be producers, that are producers, um, are investments, right? They're, they're, they're more investments. And, uh, um, yeah, that's, that's my attitude. Um, I, I totally agree with you um, on, on, the, on the smaller guys. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out um, over time. Um, there's been a raft of financings, as you know, by, by Junior Co's in the last six months. Um, 
and you know the the the, the job for them now is to deploy that money and to turn it into real stuff like resources and um, potential mining operations. Speak to your experience though, go back for a moment. Yep. People talk about they've missed the boat and I've heard this already uh, coming from feedback with our audience. They've missed the boat on gold. But speak to that for a moment. Do you really think that they've missed the boat on gold? I don't think so because, yep. you know, you know, when you look at the valuation of gold companies, and I'll go back to producers, in comparison to any other industry, technology, biotechnology, you know, whatever you like, the peanuts are uh, way out, you know. And so, you know, gold companies are still unloved, really, produ gold producers, from a relative valuation perspective in comparison to other industries. And what's the reason for that is it's still a very small uh, business, you know, from an investment perspective. So you don't have, you still don't have a lot of generalists in, in, in the market. Really what I've seen happen in the last 12 months is really an influx of retail, right? Um, and, and more than generalist funds. Now, if the generalist funds, and look at war, what Warren Buffett did, I mean, it's a very small investment from his perspective, but, um, you know, if you had another 100 Warren Buffett-type funds um, decide, well, we're going to be in gold, then you could see the valuations go up considerably more than what they are. So, unfortunately, people might see the fact that they've missed the boat in relation to what the market, you know, what the market dynamics are today. But if that market dynamic changes in the future, I think... Uh, Valuations could go significantly higher, and therefore they will have not—they will not have missed the boat. But it's got to rely on those funds, the generalist funds, to come into the sector. I don't think that's happened yet in a big way, um, and I think there's still, you know, you know, those sorts of investors sort of feeling their way through this and trying to understand if this is really real, <laughs> and um, and um, you know, it's appearing that way, but. Let's see. But from the context of 2016, looking forward, if this was a bull market, it'd be the shortest in history. Do you think we have a lot of room to run here? Because I think we do. Well, I um, think if, do. it's going to be choppy. No, I mean, if, if, look, look for me, if gold stays at around 2000, let's say that's the new base, 2000, for the next three or four years. I mean, that will have a significant impact because gold producers will be seen as real business. It's never been seen as a real business, I think, by the generalists. So it'll be seen as a real business. It'll be generating, um, you know, significant free cash flow. Um, it'll be paying dividends if that's what people want. It'll be uh, reinvesting the money in, in other things. It'll be returning money to invest. I mean, it'll become like a real business. Now, you can argue that you know, when you see the valuation of a company like Tesla, is that a real business? Well, it is a real business, but is it a, a business that should be valued as much as it is? Well, that's another that's another discussion. But I think, you know, gold's got to break through this stigma. It's It's been a really rinky-dick business, I think, over the last, I've been in the business for 40 years, and it's not huge, right? That's the problem. I mean, I, th I can't remember the statistic, but I think, you know, Cisco Systems, is valued just one company is valued more than collective gold companies, right, or something like that, you know, um, 
but anyway, irrespective of Cisco, pick on Apple or or Amazon, who are now you know past the trillion dollar mark. So um, that's the issue we face, and I think the only way we get out of that is that CEOs of large scale mining companies and producing companies are responsible, and you know are responsible with their with with the with the, the cash that they're going to be generating over the next few years, and that will prick up the attention of um, a lot of different investors that are not in the sector yet because it's so small. That's my feeling. Do you feel the same about that, the size of the sector? You know, that's one thing I haven't done, so forgive me for my ignorance. I haven't gone through and added up all the producer market caps to determine where we are today, but my suspicion is, is we're probably under $150 billion combined for publicly listed producers. So barracks at 70, let's call Newmont the same. I think Newmont's a little bit bigger. So, no, I think, you know, we're probably in the two, you know, under the 250, you know, threshold, yeah. maybe 150. But, but you're still right. I mean, when you compare that probably to any other sector, it's just very small. And obviously what's happened over the last 20 years is, you know, the, uh, the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P have all been you know, uh, sort of exponential graphs um, that, uh, so we're trying to catch up with that. So I think the more people, and I'm talking about people, not not retail, but but in fund-style fund investors, take us more seriously, the the more chance we have of, of really appreciating in valuations. Yeah, I think just to answer your question once again, have we missed the, you know, people missing the boat? I don't think so. But you've got to be—you've got to be an investor. You can't be a trader. If you're a trader, you might say you've missed the boat. But as an investor, um, you know, with a four or five-year horizon, I think you can make a lot of money. I'm just looking at the uh, combined market cap for Newmont and Barrick right now. U.S. dollars is just over about 105 billion. So, look, I, call me stupid, but you know, maybe we can see the trillion-dollar mark at some point by the time this is over. But speak to a moment. Just go back to Rio for a moment. What works? 1250 gold? What works for Rio? I mean, just give us an idea of the downside because you have three ways. You have stays the same, you have goes up, or it can come down to a certain point. So what is that point? Well, our, our MPV for our starter project, the 20,000 ton a day project, which averages about 100,000 ounces a year, the MPV at today's gold prices is about um, 500 million US or, or over 500 million US. So project MPV at $1,300 gold was about $125 million, right? So, so we're enjoying that, but, but we're not seeing it in our share price, but because our, our market cap right now is about 170 Canadian. So let's call that 100, 130, 140 US. So we're not seeing any portion of that uh, $500 million current MPV of our starter project uh, yet. So that's interesting. So we're still a value proposition and there's still a lot of talk building up, you know, or built up in our stock. Why are we valued like that? Because we're a developer. You know, it's typical of this business that when you go into the development stage, you sort of go into this quiet time and lull. Um, you're not sexy enough for a lot of people um, or particularly the retail crowd. and um, and then the big big time investors come into your stock when you actually are either at the threshold of producing or producing, right? And I'm talking about the you know the uh, blue chip funds. So 
Um, we're sort of in no man's land right now, unfortunately. So we don't have the sexiness of some of these explorers that have shot past us. Um, uh, I don't know if you've been following a story called Rupert Resources, <laughs> but you know, drilling some holes in Finland, and uh, I think their market valuation is is around 500 million bucks Canadian. Um, they don't have a resource. I mean, they're just drilling. Um, and admittedly, it's interesting drilling, but once again, you know, show me the ore body and show me something that's mineable. So, you know, uh, but it's sexy, right? Because everybody reacts to <laughs> the drill holes. Um, and um, so, you know, uh, from a Rio perspective, I'm happy, right? Because I, I, I'm patient. And I keep saying to people, we just got to be patient with the story because if you're looking for a quick flip and, you know, making 20, 30% in, in three months or whatever your style of, you know, trading or investing is, then that we're not for you. Because um, really the payoff is going to be once we get this thing into production. So the payoff will start to happen in 222 um, in respect to our story uh, from a valuation perspective. And uh, and then the sky's the limit from there, depending on you know where we where we take the project and how we expand it. So that's that's really the Rio 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 story. It's a very patient and um, uh, methodical sort of scenario without, unfortunately, without a lot of sexiness uh, right now. You know, you mentioned Rupert Resources and you said Finland. Maybe some of the shareholders should take some of those proceeds and buy some Finlandia vodka. Might be a little bit better of investment. <laughs> we'll leave that there. They're doing a good job, but the valuation is just astronomical. I mean, I can name a bunch of others as well, but that's just an example. And then you've got us in Orzone, for example, Orzone, who are going to build a mine in Burkina Faso. I think they're right at the um, project financing stage. I think that's going to lob pretty soon. Collectively, Orzone and ourselves have 10 million ounces of M&I resources. We're going to be building mines. Uh, they're, they're ahead of us. Uh, and our collective market value is still less than Rupert Resources. <laughs> so, so um, and Rupert Resources has nothing close to 10 million ounces defined in their uh, in their resource base. So, that's just the way it is, right? And yeah. um, you know, uh, you know, and people ask me all the time, just just like you've asked me that question. You know, what's happening with Rio? What you know, you know, why is it not? You know, why why are you not? Why is your, your 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 share price graph not parabolic like a lot of others? And it's because, you know, we're plodding along to becoming a producer. Uh, and I'd much rather be in my position than an explorer right now. Because an explorer, sure, it's it's like a once again, it's like a skyrocket in the night. Wow, look at it go! There it flies, bang! You know, there it blows up. But then it comes down as a burning stick. <laughs> um, I don't want to be that burning stick. Um, I want to be something solid when um, you know maybe the you know the the music stops playing um, and once again that's not going to happen anytime soon but eventually you know things go through cycles and maybe gold settles back down to fifteen hundred dollars again and a lot of these junior companies once again don't look as attractive and you know they haven't found the gold or the silver that they said they were going to find and we won't care at that point because we'll be producing bars of gold. Yeah, you know, we're certainly okay with it. I, I don't think I ever questioned you about uh, why hasn't the stock, you know, shot up. 
I probably should be asking you, why can't the stock go down further so we can buy more? But <laughs> I'll, I'll leave <laughs> Every, that. Everybody wants that to happen. And, and let me tell you, you know, I'm not doing anything. I mean, if it happens, it's because something is happening to the stock. But uh, yeah, look, uh, and, and that comes back to where we sit at the moment. You know, we, we, we're, we're sitting right now at the end of uh, August on about 9 million US dollars in, in Treasury. Um, you know, we have a bunch of warrants, about seven and a half million Canadian dollars of warrants due in um, uh, February and March next year. Um, so that's within the next six months. Uh, they're priced at 65 cents. So we're fully funded. So I couldn't, uh, we, we, and I hope you don't mind me using a, an excluded, but I don't give a shit what our share price does. So it can go down to 50 cents and let you guys, you know, guys like yourself um, capitalize, but it doesn't worry me because we're not going to be doing a financing anytime soon. We are working on project financing um, and that's a different kettle of fish. And we're trying to be as proactive as possible and as innovative as possible in the way that we do finance this project. And by saying that, um, I just want to go back to what is typical in this business. And what is typical is, yes, company goes out and gets project financing. It may be senior secured debt. Um, there may be a royalty. There may be some other uh, component with that debt. And then there's always, okay, but you've got to come up with 20 or 30% of the capital in equity. And that's the vanilla um, recipe for most companies and projects. Um, but given where uh, the world is today and the lack of yield that's being offered to general investors, right? If you're looking at fixed income, you're lucky to get about a one and a half percent. Maybe that might be a lot. Um, so there's not a lot of yield out there, and there are, you know, lots. Of, there is lots of money out there looking for relatively high yielding products. And so, you know, we're thinking about that, and we're doing quite a lot of work on that, so that we can come up with some solution where we attract. Uh, those types of investors to our story, and they may not be gold. I mean, they may not be mining investors, but they would be interested in a, in a gold-backed instrument. And to do all the capital that we need, which is about 120 million dollars uh, for our starter project, by that means, which would eliminate us from ever going back to the market again in the short term. And when I say short term, in the next few years. So, if we can do that, then we take a lot of pressure off our stock because one of the issues with a developer is that people go, okay, you're a developer, you're going to be project financing your uh, capex, uh, and that means um, an equity raising. So I'm going to wait, um, and that does put a cap on your stock because people sort of stand by or they short your stock so that they can get in as cheaply as possible at that next capital raise. Um, you know, that's been played over and over and over again in this, in, this, uh, in this business. So we've got to try and be smart and get around that. And I can tell you right now that we are working very diligently on coming up with a very innovative way of uh, financing this project. And we did that with Rio Alto, which was our previous company. 
uh, when we funded La Reina back in uh, 2009, 2010, we took down a $50 million gold loan with Redkite. Uh, Redkite don't do gold loans now. They, they've changed their business um, direction and they, they only do senior secure debt now. But anyway, back then they did a, a gold loan for us and it was one of the first in the business uh, of, that, of that cycle. And Redkite made a shitload of money out of it because gold. We we priced the um, the uh, the gold loan at thousand dollar gold. Gold price went up to eighteen hundred dollars. Um, they made a lot of money. We we built a mine um, without a lot of dilution, and uh, everybody was happy. So that was quite innovative, and a lot of people started to follow that um, route after we did that uh, loan. So. What we'd like to do is do something similar. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be a gold loan, but I'm just saying something similar that's going to be innovative. People are going to go, wow, that's something different. And that we actually do that as a serial number one, if you want to call it, or you know, a leader in, in, in doing something different in the financing side of a, of a gold project, project like ours. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing whatever it is, and hopefully we can. I still don't. One thing you can bet is I still don't know what it is because we're still we're still working on you know what it's going to look like. When I say what is it going to look like, it has to match what people want, right, from an investor perspective. So you know we're we're asking a lot of questions. Um, we've got some fairly smart brains helping us with this, and. Um, you know, I'm a mining engineer. I'm not a I'm not a financial guru, um, but I sort of know what I want to see, and uh, and certainly what I want to see is something different, um, because it's too easy to go vanilla. It's too easy to go. Oh well, you know, this is what everybody else does, so let's just do that. Um, you know, you got to look at the market you're in, what people are looking for from an investment perspective, and um, you know what will attract them to to invest in your story. They don't have to invest in an equity. Some some funds don't want to invest in equities because it's too risky. Because equities go up and they go down, right? And sometimes you're left holding holding the bait depending on when you get in. Whereas investing in a a gold related security is completely different because it's related to production. It's not related to the equity. The equity can go up and down. The value of the company can go up and down. Um, but the gold stays the same. The only thing that can go up and down is gold price. That's the calculated risk that, that the investor would be taking is what do they feel will, you know, may be happening to the gold price over over a period of time of the uh, of uh, whatever whatever the security is or the yeah you know, the issue is. So watch this space. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see what you come up with, and I'm sure you guys will find the way that's the most suitable from a cost of capital standpoint. Come back for just a moment so investors get the downside for, for those looking at the equity. If you guys had to batten down the hatches and really stick out a tough time, which you guys are capable of and have experienced, what price per ounce gold does the project really work, Alex? Our project breaks even at about 1200 So Perfect. that's why you're hearing me speak in a very relaxed tone. Uh, gold price is 2000 Am I doing cartwheels? I don't care. You know, I mean... I'm not producing it, so it doesn't really mean anything to me. But when I do become a producer, and if the gold price is 2000 you probably will see me do cartwheels because I have a project that breaks even at around $1,200. That's the message we've always given during this gold price rise is we're not a project reliant on the gold price. 
Will the gold price go back down to $1,200? Could it go back down to the base that it was for seven years between uh, 2013 and 2019 or you know whatever the period of time was? Unlikely, but if it did, it wouldn't be the end of the world for us. We've still got a healthy MPV, as I said, at $1,300 gold, our MPV is about $125 million US. So, you know, we're still a, uh, you know, our IRR is still, uh, I think our IRR is around 30% at that level. Our IRR now is through the roof. Um, so I think it's in the order of 70% right now, 80%. Right. So nothing, you know, I, I'm really happy. We have got a bulletproof project in this in this gold market. There's nothing better to have than that. So, you know, all we've got to do is run as fast as we can to the point where we produce those bars of gold. You know, so that's that's really the, the key challenge for us. Well, let's talk more Rio 2 here in a moment, but I want to switch gears to some other topics. First off, coming up soon in the U.S., a clown show for Casablanca. Who wins the hearts and minds of the U.S. people? i got no idea. I think it's a, it's a line ball call i mean i know who i would like to see there and it's not the guy that's there i mean it's unfortunate what's happened in the last four years i mean things have changed a lot in the us i'm not even american right i've never lived any length of time well we're all americans south central and north america we're all americans alex but i like to refer to us people as us people okay us people well i'm not a us person <laughs> but to see all the things that are going on right now uh, related to COVID, the race issues, et cetera, et cetera, and how things are just spiraling out of control. It's amazing. It's amazing to see. It's like our business. You know, our business survives, and any business survives, on strong leadership, right? And you can say whatever you like about the Democrats or the Republicans, but right now the Republicans are in, and there's a leader in place, and failing on that big component of leadership. And uh, um, so for me, even though I'm not involved, I'd like to see a new leader. Um, but will it happen? I, I've got no idea. It looks like line ball. There's all sorts of pluses and minuses, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I just don't know where it's going to go. I don't think whoever gets in, there's going to be an instant remedy to all this strife that's going on. So whoever comes in or, you know, whether it's the incumbent or somebody new like, like Biden, um, there's a lot of work to do to fix things. And, yeah. um, but that's going to take that one word, leadership, right? It's going to take leadership. And, and leadership means you need a very good management team under you and a very stable management team under you. That hasn't happened over the last four years. And so even if the, the incumbent wins, what his task is to regain credibility is to put together a team that can stay together for the next four years and guide the country through the issues that it's facing. And if it's the other guy, um, um, then he has to do the same. But, you know, this rotating door and the way various levels of government are, are, are behaving right now is just weird, weird stuff, you know. Yeah. It's kind of stuff we see down here in Latin America or the kind of stuff you see in, you know, the old USSR. 
but it's you know, and maybe in the old uh, uh, People's Republic of China, but it's not what you expect from the USA. That's all I yeah. can say. Yeah, certainly. And some of these countries down here, in my opinion, are, are much better off than, than what's going on in the US. But you're right. If you treat it like a business and the rule is that you have to generate free cash flow, it will work. But uh, that has failed to be realized. You know, I don't know that yeah, there's any the good solution. There, yeah. The guy that's there now is saying that he's a businessman. Well, if he's a businessman... <laughs> He's not a businessman that ever generated free cash flow, I can tell you that. <laughs> no, I know, but, 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 you know, we're laughing and we shouldn't be laughing because, you know, if he was a real businessman, um, right. you know, yeah. we should see it, right? What should be happening at this election is discussion of different policies for the next four years of the, four to eight years of the, uh, the, the government, so, or, or the right. country. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing a, almost a, a destroyed nation you know, on various levels, which is just shocking for me. I mean, right. it's, 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 you've got to say that some of the things you watch on, on, on TV, and, you know, I watch a lot of things on YouTube because I don't get all the TV out of the US, but uh, it's like watching a movie, you know, a sci-fi movie at times. And it's, it's just like, is this real? But anyway. Yeah. Certainly interesting. And but, you know, look, the Romans couldn't do it. The British couldn't do it. Uh, many others couldn't do it. I don't know that, that they'll be any better, but uh, hopefully something works out better and something good comes out of this. And I think either one is a bad choice. Let's move on here, Alex. Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned short selling earlier. I think you alluded to probably the uh, Rio 2 situation. Question from the audience, status of the short selling of the company shares. What's um, the latest? Yeah, we, we acted... Um diligently on that we we investigated it there was naked shorting of our stock there for a period of time obviously it's subsided why is it subsided uh gold prices helped us a lot because you know the gravity on your stock is up not down uh so it works against the short short sellers um and we're a real company and we're not putting out bad news so um that works against the short sellers as well. So that's one reason. But very simply, um, we investigated and our strategy was, and it still is, because we're still going through it right now, is for the imbalances that we're seeing in our um, shares that are held by CDS, Broadbridge, um, and um, and 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 we've we've got two listings because we've got a U.S. listing uh, on the OTCQX, and we've got one on Canada. So um, it's the dynamic of the cross-listing and um, and 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 the, and shares that are being passed across those um, uh, jurisdictions that we're monitoring. And what we do is when we see imbalances and consistent imbalances, we write letters to the um, uh, the banks that are actually trading our stock, right? So, and I'm not picking on anybody, but uh, let's say JP Morgan. No, I'm not, not suggesting that JP Morgan's involved, but we would write them a letter and say, look, we've got this, we've been observing this for the last few months. We've got this share imbalance that's consistent um, in, 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 with your company. Um, and we write this to the compliance officer and we say, 
so what are you going to do about it? And they usually come back and they respond and they say, oh, we don't see it, can you just elaborate, can you send us some more data, so we do that. And by doing that, the reason we write to the banks is that the short, the short trader um, could either be a person or it could be a machine, right? It can be a computer somewhere, right? Because these algos um, systems happen, as we all know. And um, they are able to do that because they're facilitated by the banks, like a JP Morgan, like a Scotia, like a CIBC, like a Canaccord, like a Haywood, like anybody, right? So the reason we write to the banks, even though they're not triggering the short, is that they're facilitating the trade. And if they're seeing that we're um, observing them, uh, and continually observing them, then we're hoping the message goes out to their traders to make sure that this doesn't happen, right? with this particular stock being Rio 2, because we're the one observing. Doesn't mean short selling comes to an end, you know, or this naked shorting doesn't come to an end from a general perspective. All that happens is that the, whoever's doing it will move on to the next victim. It doesn't have to be in our sector, it can be in any sector. So we have been very diligent and we have been very proactive in doing what I've just said and that seems to be working and it's taken a lot of the uh, pressure off our stock. But once again, so is the gold price and so is how our um, continued performance towards becoming a, a, a company in construction next year and a producer the following year. First of all, the people who put together the algos are responsible for the algos. So ultimately the robots, if you want to call it that, are going back to human beings. So they should be held responsible, one. The problem with that is, and, and through all of this that we've done, uh, this investigation we've done, it's very hard to pinpoint who's at the other end. Yeah. So it's, it's all, well, not very hard, it's impossible basically. Yeah, there's um, gotta be regulators involved. Exactly. Unless the regulators are going to get off their bums and all in concert work against or you know try and unravel this, it will never be unraveled. So Correct. it's something that's ongoing. It's something that impacts a lot of industries and sectors, not just little old junior mining. And um, it, it's it's something that a lot of people have analysed, talked about. Etc. There's a lot of things on YouTube about naked shorting. Anybody can go to YouTube and just, you know, type in naked shorting, and they'll see all sorts of interviews and people's thoughts and other things. And it's not related to mining; it's related to just general general markets. So, in our case, what we wanted to do was to just keep squawking as a little tiny itty bitty company um, and try and take the focus off us. Right, and um, with with the with the banks that are facilitating the trades, knowing that we're watching them consistently, not just for five minutes, that we're watching them and we're writing in letters uh, every month based on what the imbalance might be at the end of that month. Um, it, it may send a signal back downstream to just move on because they're not going to go away; they'll just move on to the next victim. But I think what shareholders should 
be happy about is we've identified we identified a problem and we were proactive as a board with a responsibility to our shareholders to identify what was going on and to try and mitigate and prevent it from continuing to happen. And I think we've, you know, we're on our way to successfully having achieved that. I've got some mixed views on it. Look, I've short sold stock. Um, yeah, but legally you can short anything. I mean, that's fine. Right. No, we're not, right. We're not against legal shorters. We're against naked shorters, which is where the delivery of the shares never happens. And in fact, they're selling shares that don't exist. That's something that that would be considered, I think, from a regulatory standpoint, incorrect. Now, naked shorting, of course. Look, I've done that. I've sold shares that I don't own. That's naked shorting. That's the definition. But the way that that you're describing it appears to be in a position that is potentially illegal. You never take delivery, as you know. In shorting, there's there's a borrow, and then there's a, yep. a payback, right? You borrow right. stock, and you, and you and you and you deliver it back within a period of time. That's all legal. Nobody's against that. It's when the stock that you've borrowed, you don't even borrow any stock and you never return any stock. So, because there was never any stock to return, <laughs> it's fabricated. And that can happen. Well, the, the, the banks allow it to happen. I mean, it shouldn't happen, but the banks, because they're just trading platforms, right? They turn a blind eye to it. Now, the regulators, unless they're monitoring it like we're monitoring it, which they don't. I mean, they may do it on a random basis. If they don't see it, then they don't put any heat on the banks and et cetera, et cetera. So it, it takes a concerted effort by a whole lot of groups to stamp it out. That's one thing I've learned. Now, you're talking to a mining engineer who happens to be a CEO of a public company who's gone through this. So I'm not a wizard at all this, but I'm telling you what I've picked up along the way. and right. um, and um, and so, you know, that's what I've learned. Right. Conventional short selling, you're not against because I think that's a free market component. Yeah, no, that's uh, fine. I see the difference. In addition to that, the performance by the company and ultimately the gold price rising, the performance of the company, building a mine, et cetera, et cetera, cash flowing. Doesn't the performance ultimately blow this all out? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying. I mean, if you've got a, where this kills a company is if you've got nothing. Right. If you're just, uh, uh, you know, let's say a junior explorer with moose pasture somewhere, and you know, you you know, you're not you're not building a business really, you you'll get destroyed by this, right? So the fact that we are advancing and we've got a real business uh, battle, you know, really impacts the shorters, right? And the rising gold price really impacts them as well, because uh, gold price goes up a hundred bucks and and uh, you know, the shorters are doing what they're doing because they're under the premise that this, they're going to drive the stock price down. But because of the sentiment of a, a rise in price, it just doesn't go down. It goes the other way and it puts pressure on them. So, yeah, you're right. You're right. A real business will, will get out of this eventually. But um, I think you still have to be proactive and monitor it. And uh, that's what we're doing. And we've still got an imbalance. You know, we got a few million shares that are consistently out. You know, we can't, you know, because if you're shorting stocks, you can see the flow, you know, just short, you know, borrow, delivery, you know, all that sort of stuff. That that all balances itself out. When there's an imbalance, and in our case, okay, right now, and I'm happy to say this, I mean, here we are sitting with 189 million shares on issue, and we've got a 6 million share imbalance that's been in place for the last probably 
five months hasn't gone away. And the imbalance tends to stay with certain banks. So we keep communicating with those banks and saying, why is this imbalance in place? You know, why have we got in this imbalance? Because we can't, we can't balance it out, you know? Right. So we're putting the, the spotlight on them and trying to get them to react to that. That's the only place we've really got to go because yeah. you're just trying to put the heat on them and uh, trying to get them to put heat back on the, on the illegal shorter. This is an illegal short we're talking about to go away from Rio too, because they're looking at, you know, they're looking at us. They keep hounding us about what's going on and it's coming right. from you, right? Internally, they can say it's coming from, well, they can go to their traders and say, hey, traders, Rio 2, we don't want any more illegal shorting, right? We don't know who's doing it, but please stop it, right? And then all of a sudden it stops. Shorting continues on a legal basis, but that's fine. Nobody cares about that, but it's the illegal shorts. And then the imbalance should come down to zero, right? Or close to zero. Right? It shouldn't remain at 6 million shares consistently for a few months. That's what we're getting at really interesting the whole premise of it and, and of course you know trying to talk to these big banks is like throwing effort down a black hole they do um, respond you know we're talking <laughs> we're talking to the compliance compliance officers we've got all their contact details for the respective banks and they do respond and we do go to and fro between us about demonstrating to them why we think this imbalance is in place so we put the heat on them to explain why they think it may not be in place you know and this is not an expensive process you know, it's not costing us as a, as a junior co a lot of cash to do all this, but it's something we need to do because we've been a victim of it. Is the effort, though, the response from the banks, is it coherent? I mean, is it something that's effective? Is it definitive or is it just playing games? To a certain extent, you know, we're only about six months into this letter writing. You know, what we're hoping to see is that balance come down because it's ping pong. What we're playing is ping pong, so there's nothing definitive. What we're hoping is that just by keeping on watching that they go, you know, we're sick of this, you know, Rio 2, just traders, just stop this, right, on this company. And it just goes away. That's what we're hoping for. It hasn't happened yet, but we're hoping for it. The imbalance was higher before we got to this level of 6 million, but it's still significant enough to, 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 to try and get answers for it. Why is there this imbalance consistently every month of 6 million shares? Yeah, it's pretty twisted. Well, good on you once for, again, for making Once that. again, anybody, you know, uh, without laboring on the point, anybody wants to know a little bit more about this, go to YouTube, type in naked shorting, and uh, there's a lot of videos. You can teach yourself about this and find out what people think about it. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But we're working on it so people can feel comfortable that, you know, we're on top of it. And the regulator side, as far as the Canadian regulators, and that's another, that's another kettle of fish. If you go to the regulators, then you really got to have proof. And the only way you really go to the regulators is by taking legal action. And the only people you can take legal action against are the banks. But we're not going to do that. And, it ain't uh, worth it. Yeah, it ain't worth it. And, and I, I feel comfortable now that we've identified it, we're monitoring it, we know what it is, and we continue to, to be annoying about an, uh, seeking an explanation for it. You know, the other thing, too, I just want to mention, I'm pretty certain when I browse through some statements uh, here that our Rio 2 shares were actually uh, borrowed at some point and returned uh, to, to some effect. I need to look into the details, but I do remember that when I looked at the statement. And one of the things that I think I, I want to remind the audience is 
if you have a brokerage account, you need to tell your broker if you don't want your shares lent. You need to tell them specifically and definitively that you don't want your shares lent in any way. So you need to make sure that that's clear with your broker. And look, I'm all for people having their view up or down in the market. But if you tell your broker and they refuse to do it, then I think it's time to find a different broker. We certainly encourage folks, especially folks in the natural resource space, to understand that you need to actually tell your broker to stop doing that. Because generally, in some accounts, it's by default, Alex, that this happens unless you specifically tell your broker to not do it. That's a great point. Everybody should check that. You can imagine, you know, my shareholding, I've got uh, 15 million shares. Eric Sprott's shareholding, I don't know, he's got 25 million shares or something. I mean, if we just left that with the broker and they could lend that, I mean, we'd have all sorts of problems because there'd be all these shares washing around, being lent out and being chaotic. So, yeah, you need to, even at the 100,000 share level or, you know, 50,000 share level, you can give that message to your broker and, and, ensure, and try and ensure that he's not lending those shares out. Well, let's move on to another subject here, Alex. So you're active on Twitter. I, uh, of course, uh, see what you post uh, sometimes, not everything, but certainly watch what you're up to on Twitter and some of your comments on different things. You know, one of the things that came up is New York Stock Exchange, Amex listings. Give us your thought process on that and where that might be effective. And of course, uh, you know, tell us about the context of, of some of your Twitter work. Well, just quickly, I mean, Rio Alto, uh, my previous company, which we sold to Taco for $1.2 billion back in 2015. We, in the last year or two of our existence, we were um, um, NYSE listed, not OZU Securex, and Taco was NYSE listed. And all I can say is that the compliance requirements of being listed on the main, main exchange is pretty onerous, very expensive and onerous. That comes down to SEC regulations. There's this thing called SOX, which is a you know like a you know financial analysis and, and business analysis of your, your business and how your business works, and you you got to do all these these reports and things like that. So for me, um, you know the OTCQX is a compliance listing. It doesn't cost much, and everything that we file in the, in, in Canada is um, is uh, duly uh, available in the US for investors and investors can come along. Now, you know, when you look at a stock like ours, right now we're averaging, I don't know, half a million to a million shares a day trading in Canada and, and just about 50% as much in, in the US. So we're trading, you know, 250,000 shares a day in the US. So there's liquidity. And, um, and for me, most of the big resource funds um, are happy enough to invest in, you know, through and buy buy shares in Canada. Um, I never had the the reason we listed on the NYSE was never because somebody said, "Oh, you have to list there." We just did it because we thought, "Oh, that's what you do." <laughs> um, and um, and so we became a 1.2 billion dollar company without really needing to have that listing. That's all I wanted to say. And then when I became part of Taco, which was only for a short period of time, but they were um, pedantic to the nth degree about being listed in the US and you know, the amount of money and time they spent on 
you know, all sorts of reporting and other things for, for, for the US listing was just ridiculous and just took up people's time and just crazy. And then when Taco, you know, has its problems, you know, the mine gets shut down in Guatemala and whatever, because you're listed in the US, all these class action suits get thrown at you, right? So it's like everybody just goes boom, you know, class action. Now, that only happens when you're listed on the main board. And, um, and so all I'm, all I'm getting at is I'm not saying never do it. I just wouldn't do it. I think, you know, maybe if we became a $5 billion company and, you know, we had a huge amount of our shareholders based out of the US and there was actually people asking me for a US listing from those big investors, I would potentially do it, but it's not necessary. So that's what, that's why I commented because I've seen a couple of smaller guys, you know, move to the NYSE, and I just go, what's the point? You know, it's too expensive and not really worth it. You know, they've got their reasons. A couple of them have done it because they've got assets in the US. Maybe I can understand that. I still don't see why that's necessary um, uh, because Joe Bloggs, retail investor, can easily, you know, buy shares on the OTCQX. And once again, uh, blue chip company X out of the US can buy on the TSX. So I just don't see what uh, what the big deal is about it, why, why you would do it, that's all. I'm a little bit mixed. I think if you have, if you can get to a billion market cap and you're in the right market circumstances, hands down the US is by far the best market still as far as stock market goes. Now, I'm not saying that might not happen in the future, but it still is, it still beats London, it still beats Toronto and certainly beats the ASX. If you have a billion market cap, you've got the right market circumstances, et cetera, I think it would probably make sense, Alex. But again, I've never been there personally, so I can't speak to that, but I think that that would be yeah. maybe a threshold for people to yeah. consider in a bull market. As a, as a CEO, it comes with a lot of expense and a lot of people's time. And so when you're, when you're a small company, that's the last thing you wanna be doing, is spending money on, you know, reporting and an admin um particularly when you're doing it one way in canada and you've got to you know you've got to uh, do it another way in the us well basically the same way but but in more detail and more rigorous analysis it's like we never had any pressure at rio alto to do it we did it did it help us become a 1.2 billion dollar company i don't think so i think it was part of it but it wasn't the be all and end all i think we would have eventually got there. So so anyway, that's that's just my general thought. Some people, corporate guys may may disagree with me, but that's my thoughts. On Twitter, you've chimed in, I think, briefly on Northern Dynasty. Actually, a lot of other folks have made a number of different comments uh, for and against. First of all, your thoughts on the Hunter Dickinson management team and can mining projects, regardless of where they are, whether it's Atacama, Chile, uh, Alaska, downtown New York, can they be built responsibly and equitably? Well, I think just on that last point, I think they can, but it really depends on the willingness of wherever you are operate or you know you want to operate to that happening. And you know, if you're an environmentally sensitive location or a, a socially uh, sensitive location, then it's going to be difficult. Look, you know, Northern Dynasty, there's ounces in the ground. I mean, it's just like these things sort of surface minute the gold price goes above $1,500, they all start to shine, right? So 
you know, they're all big projects. Could Barrick or Newmont or somebody big like that want to get involved there? Maybe, but uh, let's wait and see. You know, I, I get on Twitter and you know, there's, there's a few CEOs on Twitter. And, you know, one thing I don't do a lot about is promote my company, but I, but being, having been in the business for 40 years, I'm, I'm, I'm okay to make comments when people make comments about other things and I, I chime in. I'm not scared to do that. A lot of other CEOs, you know, don't like to do that. They don't want to upset the apple cart, but I've been around long enough and I'm, I'm a big boy. So, um, I'm happy to opine. I've been blocked by a few people because I've said a few things and they get a bit sensitive. Um, you know, there, there are people there, as you know, they're promoting their own book, right? So the old retail investor just gets sucked in along into the vortex of um, some of these promotional guys that are promoting their own book. And, and sometimes I opine and then I get blocked by the promotional guy. Um, so anyway, it, it is what it is. And, you know, I, I find it to be a good forum. I try and uh, make comments so to stimulate thought. I think that's what, you know, the, you know, the mining part of Twitter should be about is stimulating thought and particularly for novice investors because there's a lot of novice retail investors getting involved now. And it's just to, to, to say, well, you know, a drill, one drill hole doesn't make a mine or an ore body. Yep. And an ore body is a long way from being a mine. So there's some balance there. You know, when guys are drilling down dip of ore bodies, you know, I say it because yeah, everybody's, oh, well, look at that hole. And I go, yeah, they just drilled down the dip of the hole, the ore body. Oh, what does that mean? <laughs> it's like, uh, well, you know, an ore body has got a shape. And if you are lucky enough to be able to drill down it, you'll get a very nice intercept if there's mineralization in that ore body uh, or, or that mineralized envelope. So, um, yeah, it's just a matter of just alerting people to understand what they're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. We've been a, uh, a position holder of Northern Dynasty uh, since 2015. I think we started around 25 cents. And as you know, where is it now? $1.10, $1.15. But well done. I guess the point is, Alex, is we've been in the stock. Say what you will for the folks who want to attack me, but that's fine. I don't care. We had a, a run in that stock from 2015 late in the year to 2017, where it was over $3, and I'm talking U.S. Then, of course, a short seller came in and made some claims, uh, economic claims against the mine, and, and the stock sold off. And throughout all of this, um, it eventually got down to a COVID low of $0.35, cents. And then since it's come back up on a record of decision by the U.S. Army Corps, what astounds me is, is aside from your views on the stock, when you look at other types of events, you know, you look at things like massive oil reserves um, in ocean regions that are prestigious. Nobody seems to care when BP punches a hole into Macondo in the Gulf. After six months, it, it typically disappears. We've got uh, wind and solar projects in the United States, you know, large projects that covering, you know, 100 square miles of land. Nobody seems to care about that and how energy density works but it's funny pebble we can't do that but donlan a project just north gets approved it's within 20 miles of kuskokwim river 50 miles from the yukon river and delta red dog tech many years of operation as you know 50 miles less than 50 miles from bering sea 
and 10 miles from rivers that spill into Good Hope Bay. So it's funny, Donlin had equal mitigation, actually a little bit less mitigation than what they're requesting of Pebble in the recent U.S. Army Corps letter. So to me, it's a little bit laughable because anybody who thinks that Pebble might get built, it will obviously get built by a major who's been working in Alaska or in North America. It's funny because when I see someone post on Twitter a fishing trip where they have a fish in Alaska, I don't know where, it's a little bit funny when you have these attacks that come out about watersheds and so forth, but yet yeah. we see major mines being operated in the area that could threaten fish just as much as Pebble. And so I, I think it's funny when people attack the U.S. Army Corps and saying what they are doing is somehow not correct when everything the U.S. Army Corps does is generally based on science and engineering, not emotion. Just find it silly. Let the process work. You know, that's my thoughts on it. You know, I know people will attack us for being a, a shareholder. Let's no, look no, at the reality. Nobody can say who you should invest in or not. Let the process play out first before you start weighing with emotional decisions that have no basis. Of course, the people that are unhappy don't even live in the region. Um, I, I think it's interesting what you said, though, because, you know, basically um, you talked about BP and some of the oil companies and all that. I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier on. Nobody really cares about the mining business. So you may get these various opinions about projects that are very close to each other because there's no no concerted push you know look at the lobby that's related to oil and gas right it's huge so yeah. that's why those guys get away with it and then we've got this little tiny mine you know gold mining industry and it's like well let's you know who cares with you know i mean i'm just talking like the authorities will be saying who cares if we screw these guys around or you know not consistent or whatever i mean who cares i mean it's not going to make or break our state or our economy or anything like that, whether that, because that mine's been, I mean, not the mine, but the deposit's been sitting there for a long period of time. So I think that's the issue we face, you know, with a lot of those sorts of projects. It's the, not a lot of people care. Just like you said, I think, you know, you, you talked about who cares, who cares. You know, I don't think anybody cares, really. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I agree with you. And, and it's probably because there's just no resolve for our business in general because it's not a it's not a multi-trillion dollar business you know worldwide you know like right. the oil industry or something like that that, that, that does have a um, an environmental impact so um wherever we operate there's no easy path it's a tough project it's still sitting there on the shelf i mean i'm sure and, and this is something I'm, i think we should all be proud of i think we as a business the mining industry in general are, are very good stewards at environmental analysis and, and environmental um, mitigation in, whilst operating a, a mine. As we all know, digging a hole in the ground impacts the environment. You know, There's yep. just no two ways about it. And uh, moving that material from the hole to somewhere else impacts the environment. So, But I think our business has been very good at handling that. So there's no reason why the project shouldn't get off the ground. I think anything to do with fish and other things have been thought over and planned and you know done many times over by whoever's been working on the, the, the project. So I don't see that as an issue, but I just see the challenges of somebody saying, yep, 
there's the green light guys go that's the key yep. Look, we like HDI. We think they're a good uh, a good group. They know what they're doing. We also are a large shareholder, at least from purposes of my position. And Tosico Mines, which is a copper producer, uh, fantastic, also a bondholder. So I think they have a good team and they won't build Pebble, I don't believe, but uh, I think someone bigger probably will. And quite honestly, I don't care if it's this cycle or next, we won't be around to see it. <laughs> but uh, Okay, so nuclear power, Alex, let's talk about that. Oh, God. Uh, okay. Go on. So as you know, underlying fuel is uranium. Are you still a, an opponent of nuclear power? Hang on. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not an opponent. You know, obviously, it's an alternate source of energy, and that's great. Uh, when I do comment about uranium, because I sometimes, I think on Twitter, I I put up GIFs where, where I'm yawning or somebody's yawning, and <laughs> when people opine about uranium, it, it, to me, it's like a, a controlled commodity and uh that's my opinion i, I don't i haven't studied it a lot yeah. but the fact of what happened you know 10 years ago with the uranium price now where it's been and where it is now uh all the discussion you know to me it's like lithium you know look at where lithium was you know lithium was the end the be all and end all right and it was going to be because batteries you know you got to have lithium where's lithium business now you know because once again it's controlled by a few big guys Right. Yep. And that's that's all I, you know, all I see without detailed analysis is the uranium business. So, you know, you have a bunch of juniors in the uranium side, and it's like, well, but what's the end game? Are you ever going to build a mine? Um, is is are the bigger guys going to allow you to do that? You know, from a from a supply perspective, it's not to me. It's not the sort of thing I'd invest in because it's not like gold where or silver where those maybe some people think they are controlled but to me they're not controlled and they're they're more tied to you know currencies and the and the, and the volatility of currency and other things but uranium I, I just don't see it that's my personal opinion i just don't see it as something that i would invest in that's all i certainly see your view and it's obvious that i'll give you a pass as far as you know the study into the sector but One i'm not against things. uranium I mean, I'm not one of these guys that goes, oh shit, no, you can't build a, you know, a nuclear power plant anywhere because it's just too environmentally dangerous. No, I'm not, I'm not on that side. Once again, I think you know, the skills are there to, to mitigate as best you can uh, disasters and, and other things. And obviously people have learned from a couple of disasters that have happened over the last you know, 30 years or so. Um, yeah. But um, no, I, I'm not against the industry, but I just think it's tough very tough you know I don't I don't see how it's so investable that's all it's a situation where you have gold at 250 an ounce and at 250 an ounce even Barrett can't make it that's the situation today, that we have today that, 250 today I mean we used to make money out of 250 that's that's right so today for example the, you can't make uranium anything less than your best projects best management teams which is that's the perverted part alex <laughs> the gna that part of it can't make anything work but even if the project that has the 30 dollar a pound uranium can't produce enough uranium to supply roughly 420 reactors that are operating today that is the problem you don't have enough mine supply to actually supply the current operating can reactor. Can I say this, and once again, I'm not a, I'm not, you, know, you know, I witnessed the last 
pop in the you know the uranium business you know when was it 10 years ago 11 years ago 12 years ago 2003 and, to 2007 yeah so and i heard the same things back then and, and it happened and, and here we are you know that's correct <laughs> and so, what the exception is until you look up every reactor and you figure out all the details you can't come to any conclusion until you've actually done the deep dive which look many people have not done that so and i'm not expecting you to do that when you look at the sector and you look at what's happened with Kazataprom and Cameco being the two leader major uranium producers that are publicly listed, you'll soon find out we are in a situation that looks very, very similar to 2003. And so the only question is when, and when you calculate the actual supply inventories of the US utilities, the European utilities, et cetera, when you figure out all those numbers, you can actually pinpoint that there is no doubt a deficit here but the question is, does it happen next year? Does it happen in 2024? I can't answer that question with the exception that it will happen and it will certainly happen within that time frame. And so once you get past that part from a person that doesn't know the sector, you can't come to that realization. All you can say is, is I don't know until you've done the deep dive. And so that is the point that I think that people haven't quite caught on to. Let's just step back. Go to 2016, uranium was 18 a pound. Today, it's 32 a pound. We're moving higher. Again, it takes people to actually sit down and model it out. And that takes literally, uh, it's taken me two years. Yeah, I mean, look, and, and that's good. I mean, so obviously you're knowledgeable. And look, and I'm going to just change the subject a little bit because you're one of the power. things that I really love about gold in particular is gold is so simple, right? Gold is so simple. I don't need a market with gold, right? Because you produce gold bars, you sell it to a refinery and uh, and you get a check, right? You don't have to uh, market the material. And usually the cost of capital to build a project is relatively low. You know, here we are going to build a 100,000 ounce tranum gold mine in Chile for 120 million bucks. I've been very biased towards gold. It's something that I think I know pretty well, you know, from the point of view of building mines, not not the price. And and uh, that's the only thing that varies is the price. But it's a beautiful business to be in because it's pretty simple. And so price goes down, you find things that are higher grade than normal, uh, price goes up, you can, you got a bit more breathing room. So that's where I've come from. And that's probably why if I've been down downbeat on uranium is it, uh, to me it's just complex, right? And it's taken you two years to understand it. So it must be relatively <laughs> So that's the only reason I make my comments, which may not be, you know, I mean, once again, I think the only comments I make because I've got nothing, nothing really positive or, you know, nothing um, educational to contribute. I might put a couple of funny gifts up you know, when people put posts on the uranium on Twitter. So, you know, that's about all I do. But no, look, I mean, great. And for those who, who want to be in the sector, then that's a great dynamic. You know, for those that are not in the sector, obviously when it does start to take off, they might miss some of the first part of the wave, but you know, there'll be still, you know, if you jump in there after it started and the evidence is there, then you can still make money out of the sector, that's for sure. Really, once you look into it, actually it gets a little more simple because you have utilities, it's highly regulated by governments because of the enrichment process and all of the, the capability to enrich. You know, obviously commercial nuclear power is much different 
from an enrichment standpoint than say making a nuclear weapon hugely different which people don't understand i mean you know look we have a hurricane that comes into florida and people think that the nuclear power facilities in florida are going to explode like a bomb which obviously they haven't figured out some science but the point is utilities contract material supply and that's it it's really simple when they do that was last cycle that's why you had such a big move alex in the price from 2003 ish to 2007 as a peak and then of course things slowed down and went bad and oversupply came in as a result of the price by 2011. Yeah, can I ask you a question based on that? So the bigger guys, the Kazatom Prom or whatever they're called in Kazakhstan and uh, Cameco and whatever, have wound down production, correct? That is correct. So when the next round of supply requirements comes up, what's to stop them from just ramping it up again? When they ramp up, there's no problem with them ramping up. They won't ramp up probably until at least maybe some early takers at the $40 to $50 range. When they ramp up, that production capacity, because of mine depletion and closure, does not facilitate coverage of existing demand. You sure of that? Absolutely. Okay. Because of that, we you have to ask the question, who is going to build a mine, ISR or open pit? in Africa, US, whatever, who is gonna build substantial mine production to bring that on? And people say, well, NextGen and Fission in, in Canada, Athabasca will do that. But that project's 10 years, that's too bad. 10 years away. That's correct. Between when you get the, the current price to make them pull the trigger, Alex, that is a couple of years out. Then they have to go through the permitting and the financing. Those mines are a billion plus. By the time they get built and actually ramped up to nameplate capacity, they're done. Now, in addition to that, the fuel cycle lead time for delivery, conversion, enrichment, fabrication, that cycle is 24 months. So that's two years just in the process of getting cake in a can to form of fuel rods to put into a reactor. So it's incredible the slow lead time it takes to get that going. And so that's the points that I would bring up. That's the challenges here. So the resupply cycle that happened from 2005 when that started to 2009 was the major long-term contract resupply. Those contracts were typically seven to 10 years. Here we are now where that is coming off, supply inventory that they have held, the utilities has declined. And here we have a new recycle with a condition in the market where because of price, the price is not good, we're closing down. The restart of these mines, Alex, is not a flip of the switch. The average restart of a big mine, 18 months. And on top of that, they still can't meet demand. So that's what's interesting about this market. And that's what people don't realize it. But you can't realize that until you sit down and you go through every mine and every reactor. I'm learning something. So this has been good. <laughs> so, you know, one of the other things that's interesting about this sector is you know, the use in nuclear power. Last week we had new scale power in the US just get approved from the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for the first SMR commercial deployment in the US. And so you have this advancement of small modular reactors, which are basically reactors that are, you know, call it 60 megawatts being deployed in small scale applications, which would really help a place like Puerto Rico uh, with their hurricanes and power outages. You could place one of these or two of these in that territory and solve a lot of their power problems. Of course, that depends on the lines and how they have their infrastructure distributed. You know, one of the things that's interesting is, is when you look at wind and solar projects on land, 
that the average project to meet a nuclear power facility, which is a couple square miles, you would need roughly 100 square miles of wind or solar, assuming you had a flat piece of land, which is always a challenge, to meet that same nuclear power facility. And in addition to that, because wind and solar, as you know, Alex, aren't up 100% of the time, at closer to maybe 50% at best, how does that work? How do we convert a place the size of Texas into supporting U.S. power <laughs> with wind yeah. and solar? It's really challenging to me how you can use wind and solar as a way to uh, be the new energy. Yeah, you've obviously studied it a lot. Um, you should go on a couple of those other media platforms um, that we mentioned earlier on. Um, I pine on that because you know a lot about it. That's what it's that's what it's all about. I mean, you you know people like you, people like me, people like other you know. There's lots of other people around with various bits of knowledge. You know, it's good good to get that out and let people know and let them be able to make up their minds about, you know, whether they like what you're talking about. You know, there's no such thing as clean energy, man. There's just not. And people... That's not my gig. You know, once again, I believe the mining industry, I'm sure the uranium industry, etc., you know, the, the nuclear power industry, etc. My understanding is the nuclear power plant costs about 10 billion bucks to build. Is, is that about right? No, a one gigawatt facility, the cost standard is now Russia and China, and they're doing that around the 3.6 to $4.6 billion. So, you know, here we are, we're talking about, it's a lot of money. Part of a lot of that money is on, you know, environmental mitigation. And so I believe that, you know, there, there, are, there are ways of mitigating things, and once again, I'm sure the business has learned a lot from a couple of bad things that have happened, seismic and things like Chernobyl and why that happened. So, you know, no, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not against it at all from that perspective. I, I just think it's something that I don't understand that well, and uh, you clearly do, which is great. I think wind and solar already have surpassed the death rate from uh, construction of these projects and the impacts. Obviously, we know coal and diesel and oil and these things have astronomically surpassed the deaths from nuclear and safety-related incidents. People do talk about Fukushima 2011 as a nuclear accident, but in fact, the nuclear accident itself had very, very minimal casualties, but the tsunami itself wiped out 20,000. The perception... I think what people are scared of, I mean, and when you talk about nuclear, is the, the spread of radiation how that can happen, you know, fear, and, and that might may be unfounded or whatever. But um, yeah, that, that but that's like any business, you've got to mitigate it. It's like the people that think the fish are going to get killed off the, off the coast of um, Alaska because of a mine and uh, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> no, you're right. It's it's Alex, thing. you're absolutely right because, and I'll blame the industry big time for this, they have failed to mitigate on education about radiation, low-level radiation versus high-level radiation, how much uranium is, is contained in phosphates and fertilizer, That's bananas that you eat, the CAT scan, the x-ray that you get at the doctor's office. That is the interesting point that the nuclear industry has completely failed in delivering to the public. They have to do a better job, and, and I've certainly made my That's point a, with a lot of others. That's a key word in this world education. What's happening in the US is about education. What's happening in developing countries like Latin America is education. 
right? So it all comes down to education. And so, yes. yeah, we as a business, the mining industry, uh, the nuclear industry, nuclear power industry, whatever, uh, yeah, it's all about education, keeping people informed, uh, answering questions, you know, demonstrating um, how things work. And at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's all about education. So I totally agree with you. Let me bring this back around. Your biggest investment, and correct me if I'm wrong, is in your own company, and it's in the gold space. So that shows conviction for what you're doing, and obviously your investment in Rio2 as a percentage of your wealth makes a lot of sense. And so credit, you know the sector, you know gold mining, you know engineering, you know mine building, you know financing. And so I want to reiterate that for our audience. And so I think that's important. Well, as a wise man said, stick to your knitting. Right, and that's what I do, you know, because I think uh, too many people try to be, you know, sometimes spread themselves too thin. You know, I know what I'm doing, and the other thing is that's all I do is Rio too. I'm not on any other boards. I I'm not on any other advisory committees. I'm just 100% dedicated to Rio too, and um, yeah, I'm invested. I mean, as far as the uh, gold sector goes, yeah, all my eggs are in the Rio too basket. Call me stupid, but that's where they are. Obviously, I've got other investments in real estate and cash and other things that I'm diversified in. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a man of conviction. Yeah, and um, but I do stick to my knitting, and this is what I know best. And uh, if you see Alex Black, you know, suddenly all of it. I mean, this is a really interesting thing that's been happening of late. And you've seen it. Is you know some companies changing their name, and they go, okay, we're not now Rio Two, we're now Rio Two Silver. And then in five years' time, we're, no, 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 hang on, we're Rio 2 Gold. No, no, we're going to be Rio 2 Gold and Silver. No, we're going to be Rio 2 Metals. No, we're going to be Rio 2 Copper. And uh, you'll never see that with me. <laughs> and that's one reason we picked the name Rio 2 Limited, is that we are precious metals focused, but we don't have to change our, our name every five minutes. And I think that's a good point about the naming and, and of course, uh, your skin in the game and maybe even taking delivery of bars from the mine or i'm not sure what your personal view is on on the holding of physical gold but let's do talk about your biggest concerns with the project going forward you know you guys are in the permitting process yeah what do you see as the biggest concern for the project and how are you reducing those issues the biggest concern we have and i've i've elaborated on this a little bit in the past uh, on recent interviews is is COVID. Uh, COVID's have had a big impact down here in Latin America. It's had a big impact in Chile. Um, and what will the impact be um, that we're trying to mitigate is timing. And um, and so that's all we're focused on is how do we stick to our schedule given the constraints of COVID. And um, we're doing some interesting things to, to do that. But that's the only thing that really concerns me. You know, we're not building a project that is going to kill fish or is going to, you know, kill animals or plants or whatever. We're in the middle of nowhere. The environmental impact is minimal. Uh, socially, we've got six community agreements with all the communities impacted by our projects. We've got those community agreements in place now. They've been in place for the last few months. Um, we've filed our EIA, so we're not expecting any issues, but um, the issue we're dealing with is COVID and what that impact will have on 
anything going forward you know, uh, from a development perspective. So that's the only concern I have. Um, and uh, once again, we will be doing lots of things to try and speed up and mitigate those constraints. I recently saw a series on Atacama and some of the species and plants in, in the area there. And let me just warn you, if you send any U.S. biologists down there, I'm sure they'll find something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, yeah, the Atacama region is a pretty big region. You know, we're at four and a half thousand metres above sea level. So there isn't much up there, let me tell you. Agreed. Uh, pipeline, Alex, I know you've you've spoken about uh, pipeline and, uh, you know, expansion on that front. Uh, is there anything you want to share with the audience as far as, you know, pipeline projects, jurisdictions, what type of stage of projects you're looking for, and maybe a move? No, I mean, we're, we're, we, we've always uh, said that we're working on water options, and we are doing that right now. Forgive me, uh, pipeline, I meant project pipeline. Oh, project pipeline. <laughs> okay, so we've covered off on water. Uh, project pipeline. Look, unfortunately, now that the gold price has risen, um, a lot of the people and companies we were looking at or starting to look at or wanting to look at have just gone way beyond our ability to, to, to even contemplate doing anything with. You know, we continue to look, but uh, more at exploration slash development opportunities rather than producing opportunities. Um, however, um, you know, one of the things we will be doing and we will be announcing shortly is uh, a push on exploration around Phoenix. We, we have some nearby targets that are, we've already got in our, in our portfolio and some extra land that we're currently picking up in, in and around Phoenix um, over ground that has very similar signature to 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 what we see at phoenix at surface so that will be a focus for us too is to start up a, an exploration campaign around the project the other thing that we've contemplated and it will depend on you know availability of capital to do but we have a 1.4 million ounce inferred resource base at phoenix um, that's um, between the various we've got three key um, nodes to the uh, resource, Phoenix Central, South and, uh, and North. And obviously there's drilling that we could do between those nodes to convert some of that inferred resource to, to measured and indicated. Um, we've held off on that because we've already got 5 million ounces of M&I, but um, we could easily you know, um, turn that on and uh, look at uh, adding to our M&I resource base. So, so there's, there's things that we can do organically um, as much as do things um, from a, an m and perspective. So we continue to look on M&A. We, we've got some active files going at the moment, but um, it's becoming more difficult. It'll be interesting to see what happens on that front with you guys building this out, how that goes with M&A, who folks that are looking at your project. Um, and of course, you know, once you guys become a cash flower slash depleter um yep. you know how you guys look at expanding that and i think obviously starting on your own district uh, exploration package near the project makes sense and you know how you guys extend that mine life who knows where the sector is at that point so what people need to understand in that maricunga gold belt we are the only junior company with a defined plus five million ounce resource already drilled out 
which is very simple, being 100% oxides, which will be in construction next year. We're the only company of that type in that region. Now, our neighbours are Kinross, Barrick and Newmont. Uh, they're the key players in that Marikunga Gold Belt. So, yeah, it's going to get interesting uh, once we do risk this project and, and get it up and particularly if we do a PEA on, uh, on expanded water options and show, I think that we're going to be able to produce it somewhere between 200 and 300,000 ounces a year. Um, then we become 300,000 ounces a year as a tier two category project for Barrick. They've, they've categorically stated that. It's, it's interesting. It'll be interesting. Yeah, I think you got a good setup, and I think there's some runway left, and hopefully you guys will delineate that to the market uh, when the time's right. Potential investors considering Rio 2, Alex, at these price levels, and also existing shareholders who want to deploy further capital potentially in Rio 2. What would you say to them? Well, if if you're looking at an investment scenario where you're willing to sit on the stock for the next three years or so, then I think it's a great opportunity. If you're looking for a quick trade and a quick 20, 30%, you know, three months or whatever, then there's plenty of other stocks to, to play that, right, out there right now in this market. So once again, we, we are a mine building company. We will build a mine here. We will not get taken out before that happens. So we're not a takeout proposition. And I don't think many companies out there are because a lot of the big guys are not, you know, a lot of the things that are out there don't move the needle for a lot of the bigger guys. So it's all about do you want to invest in the next emerging, you know, sort of small to mid-sized mining company, then that's us. But it's going to take an investment over the next three plus years. Uh, and what will happen to the stock over that time? I think we've got every chance of being a five to ten bagger during that time. Once again, depending on the gold price, but with patience, that's where that's where we should head. And the reason I'm saying that is because I've seen it happen to others that have done the same, and we did it before with Rio Alto. Um, so we built a 1.2 billion dollar company by executing and delivering. So all I can say to investors is that's who we are, that's what we are, and if you're prepared to invest in that type of story, then it's a great opportunity. If you're not, then there's plenty of other opportunities out there. Fair enough. And for folks who want to reach out to you and the company, Alex, uh, how can they do so? Yeah, look, I'm, and I've said this many times before, uh, I'm an open book. I'm available to all shareholders, whether you own a thousand shares or, or 10 million shares. Um, my email address is alex.black at rio2.com, alex.black at rio2.com. And um, you can email me anytime. And I, my track record so far is that the same day I receive the email, I give a response. So um, that's the way I want to be as long as I can do it. Um, I mean, obviously, if I get a thousand emails, I'm going to, it's going to, I'm going to find it hard. But I do get, you know, one or two emails a day from various people, and and I'm always responding to those emails. So that's the best way to find me. Well, Alex, uh, really been a pleasure. I appreciate the extended time and uh, you keep up the efforts over there at Rio 2 and uh, stay well in Peru. Yeah, okay, Andrew, and uh, thanks very much. I really enjoy these interviews and obviously we'll catch up in a few more months and uh, hopefully we've got a lot more to talk about.